What's up, Elixir Talk fans? It's Desmond. You may notice at the end of this episode, we say that we're going to take a few weeks off for a short break. And you also may have noticed that we've already taken a couple weeks off as a short break. And the story there is that we recorded this episode a little before the 4th of July and ended up taking a short summer break. So we're back. Sorry for the long delay, but we're happy to give you this episode today. And we will be back next week with our next episode. So just ignore us. There's no more break coming up after this. We're back in action with more Elixir Talk coming. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am here with Chris Bell. Hey, Desmond. How's it going? Hi, Chris. You look like you're about to melt. I am extremely hot and uh, feel like I'm going to melt, indeed. <laughs> so, New York is a, some kind of hellish environment right now where it's like over 30 degrees, or for those who operate in Fahrenheit, like 90-something. I think it's like 97. That's pretty hot. That's, that's insane. So, um, I'm in my apartment with my AC off. Also, I can record this podcast. That's a lot of uh, sacrifices for the listeners. Exactly. I do it all for the community. Well, I hope they, I hope they appreciate it. I'm sure they do. <laughs> How's things with you? Things are good. It's sunny and warm here. It's not quite so warm. You know, the funny thing about LA is it's always like 73 degrees, but in the summertime, it feels a lot warmer than 73 degrees. It's kind of strange. I haven't figured out why. But that sounds nice. It doesn't sound too hot, which sounds ideal. No, it's not too hot. It's perfect. It's really quite nice. Nice. So, uh, do you have any news? <laughs> <laughs> so, what Chris is alluding to is um, I do have some news. After several years as an independent consultant, I've decided to go in-house with my current client, a company called Versus Systems. Um, I'm their new head of engineering, and I'm pretty excited to be working with them. They have a extensive Elixir app that I've been working on for the last couple of months. And what the company does is they have a product for mobile video games, and they let players compete inside the game for prizes. So, like, you're playing a racing game, um, you can opt into say, well, I want to try to beat race this lap in under three minutes, and if I do that, then I will win like tickets to the to the races, to like the actual races. Which is cool because it's a way like not to look at ads in a game and instead to do the things you were going to do anyway and have fun and win like cool shit. So, so that's cool. And it's a pretty interesting Elixir app. Like I said, I've been working on it for a while. A lot of the stuff we've talked about on this podcast have, has come from work I've been doing there. And the reality is like it's, there's some pretty intense scaling requirements. If people are playing, these games will have tens of thousands of concurrent users. And when you talk about some of the bigger games like Call of Duty or Fortnite, I mean, those games, they'll have millions of people playing it at any given time. So we have a lot to think about to be able to handle that. And we're not in those games right now. I mean, this is not like a problem that we're about to have. But as the company gets more and more successful, we have a lot of interesting stuff to figure out. So it's cool. The whole backend is written in Elixir. Um, top to bottom, we have a couple services in Ruby. There's some front-end stuff in React. 
And then we have these mobile SDKs that the game developers use to integrate us into their systems. And that's for iOS, Android, and Unity. So I'm in the interesting position after several years as a solo developer to say that I'm hiring. So if any of you listeners is interested in working with me on a very large Elixir project, then feel free to get in touch. I think you all know how to reach us at this point. So yeah, it's a big news. I'm pretty excited. It feels a little weird, you know, when you've been out in the wild for a long time, but I wouldn't have joined it if it wasn't a really interesting opportunity. So it's cool. How big of an Elixir app is it? How big in terms of lines of code, in terms of... Uh, I guess like... Is it like focus around an API? Is there other parts? Like what what does it look like, like the shape of it? So it's mostly an API that serves requests coming in from the games themselves. So a game developer will integrate our SDK, which then turns around and calls our server. When a user signs up, when they start one of these in-game challenges, when they win a prize, we respond to all of that. There's also some dashboards for people to kind of set up and configure the prizes themselves. Like, what are the win conditions? Do you have to beat the lap in three minutes versus two minutes? Is this only available on Tuesdays or what? So it's mostly a server-side API. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then now it makes sense why I've been talking about all these processes. Tons of processes, man. I'm up to my ears in them. <laughs> so what's been the biggest challenge so far kind of uh, dealing with this? In dealing with the app or in dealing with... Uh, I would say in dealing with the technical problem of dealing with uh, the amount of scale that you're dealing with and around processes, especially. Let me think. Let me think. It's just a lot of data. Like we're using processes as an in-memory cache, more or less. And I, I really wanted to just store the state in the processes and have it be some sweet live system. But if the system goes down or we reboot it, then... We can't afford to lose the fact that people are competing for something. Like, that stuff is real money to the company. So we have to back it all up in a database. So all the stuff in memory is more or less a giant cache. And that has its own, you know, then it's a, then it's a caching system. And so one thing we haven't explored is do processes make sense as a way of dealing with it? Or do ETS tables make sense? And especially as we grow larger and we look at moving to a cluster, well, then how do we, how do we share that state among the cluster? Uh, do we keep it in ETS tables and move them around? Do we go to something like Amnesia, which is resilient to a node going down? Do we move it to an external system? You know, maybe something Redis makes sense in, in this instance. But then, like, something that I'm afraid of is feeling that we are moving away from how Erlang systems want to be built and back into, well, here's a massively concurrent web server that uses existing technologies. And if it's, if that's the right tool for the job, then that's what we have to do. I don't know. I have this emotional attachment to like spinning up processes and being all like elixir you know? I keep trying to keep elixir in. Keep an elixir in. Nice. So if I wanted to join the team, where can I go to find out more information? Well... Uh, the company is called Versus Systems, so you can look us up on the internet at versusystems.com. You can also contact me through Elixir Talk. Uh, just hit us up on Twitter, or you can contact me directly through email at uh, desmond at crevalley.io. That's C-R-E-V-A-L-L-E.io. 
uh, or open up an issue on GitHub. I don't know. Just like get in touch with us somehow, and we'll find a way to start talking. I mean, <laughs> nice, yeah. awesome. Yeah. So it's... what else has been going on? That I mean, except for that, that's pretty big news for you. So. What else is going on? Well, actually, so this is sort of interesting. By the time this episode comes out, Independence Day will have come and gone. And for our listeners in other countries, uh, July 4th is America's Independence Day. And I'm going to a party being thrown by some British friends of mine, some other British friends of mine. And I think it's a little subversive that British people are throwing an Independence Day party for us. They're just trying to fit in. Is that it? Yeah, I understand it. I mean, if I show up and they're all wearing red coats, then then I'll start getting nervous. But <laughs> the British are coming. The British are coming. <laughs> the British are already here. Oh no! <laughs> well, yeah, that that sounds like a good Fourth of July, though. Yeah, definitely. So, so that's the main thing I have going on. Oh, and of course, we have the MPEX LA Civic Hack Retreat on Saturday, August fourth. So that's just a couple of weeks away, and. It's coming together pretty well. We already have this mansion with a, a pool and a, some great views of the hills. It's it's really pretty nice. And that's a, a one-day retreat slash training for people who want to work on uh, a non-trivial Elixir application for the benefit of the city of LA. So we'll have access to city data sets. We're partnering with the LA Civic uh, Hack for LA uh, group, which promotes... Um, which promotes general use of city data sets that are for the public good. So we're very excited to be partnering with them. And you can work on something else, but we thought this would be nice to give to give projects direction. Usually when you show up to one of these things, it's like, ho-hum, what do I do? And so this, I think, makes for good focus. And so for people who have not had as much opportunity to work with the language or aren't sure if they're doing things right, we'll have a pool of experts there at the pool and you can check one of us out to help you with your with your problem, give you application uh, design advice, or just help you get unstuck. Very cool. And I noticed that on the website, front and center, you put that photo of the pool. Yeah, well, that's sort of the... Uh, it's like the, the jazz club with the disco ball or the neon sign. Nice. You know. It sounds like a fun day. It sounds like very LA-esque, MPEX-y things. Yeah. So cool you know kind of relaxed i mean we'll get some work done and and we'll learn some stuff so it's not just going to be us sticking around but can also hang out by the pool we're going to be grilling all day you know it's like mpex hangs out in la yeah that sounds like a good social get together as well so yeah uh, awesome so where can everyone go to find out more about that you can all go to our website which is mpex.co slash la <laughs> i like that voice a lot <laughs> that's my announcer voice is for the very professional announcer voice. <laughs> I know, right? I should have you do it. I mean, I think your I voice is more sonorous. That's thank you. I'll take that. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, go to mpex.co forward slash la, and you can find out a lot more about that event. Cool. And we hope to see you there, even though I won't be there, but uh, Desmond definitely will be, as he is one of the pool of experts. That's right, and I do hope to see you there. Cool. So I thought we could spend a little bit of time today talking about how we develop in Elixir. First of all, Desmond. Yes. Enlighten us on your setup. Uh, So in terms of the text editor that you use and what that looks like for you coding in Elixir day to day. So I use Vim. I've been using Vim since 2010, basically when I started programming. So I've been using Vim for about eight years. And... It's great. I love it. Uh, People say, like, learning Vim is kind of strange, but I just decided one day that, for credibility's sake, I needed to learn this thing. 
So within three months, I was, I wouldn't say that I knew everything there was to know in Vim within three months, but I was certainly like proficient. I mean, I would say within two or three weeks, I was like able to, you know, I never look back. What flavor of Vim are you using? I use MacVim, which okay. I picked up from my time in Pivotal. I like it because as a separate application, instead of a thing inside of my terminal, I can, I have a global hotkey set up to it. So I have a global hotkey for terminal, it's command shift I, and then command shift M sends me to Vim. So wherever I am, I can immediately get to my text editor. So what kind of Elixir specific things do you have set up in there as well? I use the Vim Elixir plugins. And I think that does, no, I'm thinking of, I had a closure plugin for rainbow parentheses. Uh, I don't think I'm using that anymore. But I don't use like Vim Alchemist or any of these sort of like live run a copy of of the VM in the background plugin. I just like Vim to be a text editor. And when I run or run the tests, I flip to my terminal and then run mixed test. I don't try to integrate that within Vim because the color output gets all screwy. Oh, so you don't even have any like leader keys that run your tests or anything like that? No, I have a leader for a mixed format. Okay. But that's it. I have shortcuts for copying the current file and the current line. Mm -hmm. So I can quickly copy that, flip to my terminal, paste it in with the mixed test, and then I'm up and, up and running. So you, that's pretty bare bones. I was, I was like honestly expecting you to be like, I've got a Vim plugin for X, Y, and Z. And I was honestly thinking that we would be talking about this for the next like hour. So, <laughs> you know... But you do you, man. You do you. No, I don't need a lot. And that's one thing that I'm attracted to about Vim. And I, I realize we're skating dangerously close to a flame war here. But I, I like it because it's just an editor. A couple years ago, I tried to get into Emacs because they have some very cool Elixir integrations in Emacs. And Space Macs seem like it kind of bridged the gap of Emacs with Vim bindings. And I just never took to it. Like, it didn't seem to offer that much more over my current setup and vim is my text editor and the terminal is my command runner and it works for me it works very well and i don't do like automatic syntax checking in vim i mean usually like the indentation will tip me off that i've messed something up and then when i flip to run the test then it fails to compile and it tells me where and it's like oh that's a pretty easy fix i haven't I haven't known that to be a serious source of like time slowdown bugs. So have you ever played around with um, like Emacs and done any of that kind of stuff? Not really. Back in the day, I, I decided like I, I should learn a, a serious editor. And this was in the glory days of TextMate. And I thought, well, I either have to learn Vim or Emacs. And a good friend of mine was learning Vim. And so I just, I just went with that. You know, it's one of those like you flip a coin and you just invest into it. And I, I have no problem with Emacs in general, but I went down this path and, and it's worked for me. I hear people rave about Alchemist as like a plugin for Emacs, but I've, I've honestly never dabbled in it, but it seems like it does a lot of stuff for you. But what do you use? So you actually got me into Vim, unsurprisingly, <laughs> Yes. Um, after working with you. But and at, at that point in time, I was using NeoVim and I actually went for some of the Elixir plugins and use some test runners and things like that just to make my life a bit easier when I was doing that day to day. I tend to prefer like something where I'm in a test file and I can just really easily run it like just with a leader key. I was using like leader key T 
and it would just run the current line I was in. And that was great. So does that return the output in your Vim console? Yeah, it did, which I understand why you don't like that. But then I guess there's better ways. Well, there's other ways to do that as well. But after that, I actually switched to VS Code. And I've been using VS Code for actually quite a while now just to... And like, honestly, I, I started with this like... In, when I was using Vim, I was all about the like no tree. I just want to like search for files and jump between it. And I think again, I got that from you, and I thought you were kind of cool, so <laughs> I copied what you were doing. Uh-huh. And then actually, now I've been back in back in VS Code. I've actually just really appreciated having a file tree just to jump around things. So, but I still use some of those nice uh, kind of shortcuts there. There's actually a really fantastic uh, VS Code plugin for Elixir that does a bunch of different things for you. Uh, It integrates with the debugger. It has dialyzer built in. Mm. It includes inline reporting of build errors. It does code completions. It it actually does a ton of stuff for you. So I'm a big fan of that. And it it also, you know when you use some plugins and it feels like it really slows everything down? Yeah. This one actually seems to be pretty decent. It uses like a language server in the background and it feels actually nice and snappy still so yeah i remember when that elixir ls the language server came out a couple of weeks ago that was that's a pretty big deal yeah honestly um yeah i i'm like huge fan i think like i think having something like that and you know you don't need to have like a fully featured ide right like but there is some real benefits to having something that helps your life out a little bit and (laughs) makes it a little bit easier day to day to jump around and do this work yeah, I think there's like there's a sweet spot and a nice middle middle ground between like completely no bare bones like what you're using in Vim and and like a fully featured like Xcode or a Ruby mine or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me like VS Code with some of these um, language server features really kind of solves that for me. I mean, I really like this is why I looked at Emacs a year or two ago is because I saw some of these features about dropping in type hints or dialyzer checks into your code and i thought it looked pretty sweet and i would like to have that stuff but there aren't good integrations for it with vim and so i'm forced with just switching editors entirely right and i have to say man i am really attached to my key bindings like my google chrome has vim key bindings i use j and k to scroll up and down on web pages just vim for life is that what you're trying to say it's just hard to shift like i'm very productive in this language, like in the Vim language of movements mm. and stuff. And every editor I've seen that has a Vim mode, it's not really Vim mode. It's close, but then there's always that 5%. And then as soon as you bump into it, it it ruins the illusion. So have you ever used like a proper IDE or anything like that? Well, I use Xcode if I'm writing an iOS app. Right, right. What, and, and like, what's your like general opinion about using tools like that? You have to use Xcode if you're writing an, I, an iPhone app, right? So I, you know, if that's the cost of entry, then that's that's what I have to do. I've used um, IntelliJ a little bit. I used Eclipse a little bit, and they they seem so clunky. And like, I don't even like autocomplete in Vim. There's so Vim has uh, Control N to tab complete, but you have to tell it you want to do that. I use it sparingly. I don't like if I'm writing something and then it automatically pops something up, so I hit enter and it, it never does what I want. I don't even like when editors add the closing parentheses or the closing braces automatically. <laughs> that screws me up too. Wow. You you are really just, you, you just like to be in full control, clearly. 
it just doesn't seem like it buys me that much. Right. I, I mean, I do like it sometimes when there's like, uh, I'm like dealing with a function and in VS Code, it will include some of the arguments in like when I hover over the function, just as like a reminder of what it expects. And that to me is just like, Again, it's like that nice sweet spot between like having nothing and having just enough like that it gives you that pointer without having to jump to the definition again. Mm -hmm. Oh, and the other thing that drove me crazy in Vim is like, and I think this is just my fault, is all the window management stuff. Mm -hmm. I just got so lost at times. And uh, I would open way too many files and I don't do a good job of like cleaning up the the windows I had open. Uh So, So then I was like, I had these bits where it was like literally like three lines of code shown at the top the whole time, you know, because I was like splitting constantly. Now that you mention it, I think that's why I originally chose Vim was because I liked the window management because I could have different tabs and within each tab I could have different panes open at once and I can split them as much as I want. And this is a cool thing about Mac Vim is you can use the cursor to adjust the the pane sizes like the window the tab pane sizes oh that's nice so you don't always have to like fart around with typing commands to do that yeah i mean i i will manually or i'll type in a command to split it but then if for some reason i need to adjust it or like the windowing gets screwed up and i want to i want to fix it it's nice to have that bailout Hmm. but i i rarely use the mouse yeah like that's what i like about it to be able to have several panes up at once can you talk a bit about how you like to work day to day with like jumping between a module file and a test file and like how you like split your windows and stuff like that? It really depends on the specific thing. If I have a module and then the test that I'm working on, I'll have I'll vertically split them. So I have two panes side by side, the test in one, the module in the other. If the module is calling out to other modules that I'm interested in, I will split its side into two or three or whatever makes sense. So then I have three things of code on the left and then the test on the right. And then are you running the test like continuous? Do you do like TDD or are you not, loose with that? Not usually. Right. I will if if I'm trying to understand what the what the problem space is and I'm trying to think through all the failure cases. But in Elixir, it's easy enough to write that out in functions. Mm. So I usually write my tests afterwards. I, I found Elixir to be like one of those things where you can write basically like a big chunk of code and then you make it work and it it typically works right like you get it to compile and you're like oh it works and there's something like really satisfying about that as well compared to like when i was doing a lot more ruby and more dynamic languages felt like you would come across unexpected errors more often when you were kind of you'd written a bunch of code and then maybe there was one branch that you hadn't fully tested mm-hmm. and then you went to run it and at that point you would find the failure whereas elixir if it compiles it tends to work and thinking through like different error cases for different steps in your business logic, I think it's much easier in Elixir because you know, okay, I'm I'm calling this function with these arguments and I, I'm either going to get this back or that back. So hmm. I think about the case statement right there or I think about the fat pattern matched functions right there. And what about refactoring for you? Like how do you like go and rip things out and do stuff like that in Vim. Is that like fairly easy or? Yeah. I mean, I have find and replace. I have copy and rename. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Just go for it. Yeah. But what about on like bigger refactors? That must get really annoying. Well, think about it. Refactoring in an object oriented system usually means or often means I have a line or I have a file with several methods and I want to break them out into some sort of pattern. I've 
uncovered that I'm using the visitor pattern. So now I need to really restructure my code and think about how the different objects talk to each other and what their relationship is. And, oh, I've uncovered a new concept. So that's a new object. So then I'm taking lines from four different files and putting them in this new one. Refactoring in an object-oriented world is tricky. And I think that's where automated tools make sense. That's where a lot of program assistance makes sense to help keep track of that. Refactoring in Elixir usually means making a new module and copying and pasting a couple of functions in and then finding and replacing that the name of that module with the call site. I mean, so it would be nice, like, I have mixed feelings about using aliases because if I'm yeah. trying to find all occurrences of a function call and I've aliased it, I can't just say, well, here's the full name with the module. And I wish there were good tools for that. Mm. Isn't there like um, the X-tree thing or something so you can see all the dependencies on a particular module? XREF. XREF, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I honestly, I always forget about XREF. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, like Everyone always talks about it. I'm like, oh, I've ne- I don't think I've ever actually like done it or run it against an app. No, I mean, when Jose was on the podcast, he was going on and on about it. And we were sitting here like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. We should do that sometime. And then we forgot. Yeah, about no, it. I, I literally like this is the first time I thought about it since that moment. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty bad. But I wonder if that could like help at least so, show some of that dependency tree, you know? Well, does it show it in your sweet VS Code? Uh, no, it doesn't. Oh. Well, it probably, honestly, it probably does. And it's just a feature that I don't know about. And honestly, that's like one of those things where my limited knowledge and like me just doing the bare bones I need to do day to day. I haven't really dug around the edges of the tool and like seen what else it can do. So, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's probably more my fault. I will say that refactoring is easier in Vim or it's facilitated by having all this flexibility with how I split my windows. Mm. So if I'm moving things around, it's pretty easy on a large monitor to have everything like up and split at once and my brain works such that i can keep track of which file is in which thing how do you, so you talked a bit before about like aliases how do you think about aliases versus imports uh that's a good question how do you think about aliases versus imports well like actually it came up in a code review today so that's why i was like interested um mm-hmm. so a good example is done a bunch of refactoring, pulled a bunch of functions out of one module and moved it into another module, let's say, because it better encapsulates that set of functions. Now, instead of changing all the call sites to actually reference the new name um, of whatever it is with a prefix with the module, if you just import that entire module and all the public functions, everything just carries on working, right? Well, it's bad practice to import all of the functions, right? Aren't you supposed to just name the ones that you want? Well, if that was true and it was bad practice, then they shouldn't let you do it. Okay. Like, they shouldn't be able to just say import module and it brings in everything if that was true, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you have to say import module all true or something like that. That's true. Yeah, so in that way, I think that actually it probably is bad practice, to be honest, because it kind of obfuscates like where the actual implementation is. To be honest, I I don't even know when to use import. I rarely use it. The only time I use it is when I have like a utils yeah. module and I want to camel case all of these strings or something. Right. Like literally the benefit is saying it, it just removes the module dot. Yeah. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and again, you could get most of the way there with an alias. You know, you can yeah. alias it down to just utils dot snake case. I I do kind of get it. Like sometimes I guess I guess having things imported into a module kind of symbolizes that it's like almost shared functionality within that module where if you're calling another function in a in a different module it's kind of explicit that that thing lives externally but then this might be trying to invent patterns around things in functional languages where you just don't really need it well we see this a lot in phoenix where the phoenix controller imports a bunch of router functions a bunch of um connection helper functions, and it makes for a very clean API. Right, and actually, to be fair, in that case, yeah, I guess, it, actually, that's a good point. So in that case, it's nice because it, from a maintenance standpoint in Phoenix, they can decompose these things into lots of smaller modules mm -hmm. worth of functions and then compose it back together in, and into something that is exported as, like, you know, you just bring in all this functionality. But, like, maintaining it is probably better particularly if it's a developer library like phoenix like if i'm just mm. in application code my modules don't usually decompose in that way right i've definitely done it in the the helper library thing that you talked about before you know like i th like that to me is like oh i have like three modules or actually here's a really good in, like example we have a bunch of protocol implementations mm -hmm. and all of them rely on the same kind of shared behavior in some ways so what we do is we extract that into a shared module and then import all those functions into each protocol implementation mm. for like smaller helper functions, basically. That makes sense. Yeah, like in that case, it's like quite nice because, you know, it looks like those things are local to that function, even though they're defined elsewhere. But it means that you get that nice reuse out of it without having to reference external kind of functions. So do you use aliases a lot? Yeah, I tend to like... I tend to alias things a lot, actually, yeah. Especially, like, especially namespaces where, you know, you're bringing in a bunch of schemas or something like that mm -hmm. into one place. I tend to always basically alias them at the top. And, like, do you remember when um, you couldn't do that, like, multiple aliasing mm -hmm. in Elixir? Yeah. Yeah, that, like, that was really annoying. You ended up with, like, lines and <laughs> lines of aliases. And now it's, like, so easy to say, like, module dot submodule dot curly break like curly bracket and then all of the things that you want to alias but see i prefer the original one now because it's easy for me to grep for uses of that module right right right, right. yeah you mean like the full module path yeah like if i'm trying to find every every place that i reference the module um data schemas user and I'm in a file where I have alias data dot schemas user comma account comma company whatever. Then that's hard to search for. Like it's it's a difficult like expression to put in a finder. Right. Well, isn't that just basically you could definitely write you could definitely write a regex for that though, right? It's like whatever the thing, ignore the. Look for either that or something that starts with a curly bra like brace and then the module name. Yeah, but I would prefer not to ruin my day by having to write a regex like that. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's fair, that's fair. <laughs> but then, like, how many examples of something called user do you have in your system in that case? Well, there could be several. I could have, like, the user schema, I could have a user service, I could have an external user. And so where 
I will use an alias, and I always I always smile when I get to do this, is if I'm in, say, a user context or mm-hmm. an account context or something, and I have, like, data schema's user that might conflict with logic.user, I alias data schema's user as schema. So you, would you never just call, like, the user logic, just name that module user logic instead of calling it logics.user? Because then you basically solve that problem, right? Yeah, that's one way to do it. But then I think you you're not grouping things under the correct. Like I think there's a certain hierarchy. Right. This is the controller's argument, right? Well, user <sighs> controller versus controllers dot user. Yeah, and actually, we're dealing with with this at work right now um, because we have things like uh, use like something dot user logic. And the question is, do we break that into .user .logic? Do we break it into .logic .user? I think that's not the right answer. If anything, it's user .logic. But logic is so sorry. I'm going to get petty, but like logic is doesn't mean anything. Like what? What? What does that encapsulate? It's the thing that does stuff. <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> it's the it's the user brain. I, I like I really like the term service for all these things, but I know that's also totally overloaded as well. I don't I'm not that fond of the the word logic either. Mm. At times it it has made sense in my code, but what what is the right word? Is it service as a context? <sighs> yeah, I, I I tend to like service a lot, but then also so what we do is we just we we follow the context model and pluralize all of the things that are services effectively. Uh. So there's no like like there's no like service dot accounts it's just accounts plural mm-hmm. so like actually finding that module is fairly simple because it's the only thing that's pluralized but also that i guess that's not a good rule when i say it out loud i'm like that doesn't make that much sense but yeah yeah because it's tripped me up when i've gotten or i've worked on code bases that mix singular and plural yeah yeah i understand that but it could be nice to differentiate is this is this a service? Is this just a bunch of queries? Are there gen servers behind it? Um, but then I think you're forcing that information on the caller, and I'm not sure if the caller needs to know it. Or do they? Because you can't escape the fact that, and we touched on this in earlier episodes, the thing behind the veil is a synchronous or asynchronous call. What, what do you do about schemas? Sorry, while we're on the naming thing subject. What do you mean? What do I, what do, I do about them? <laughs> well, what do you name them in your system? Do you do you put them like under a schema directory or something, or like have a module namespace that's called that schema or anything like that? Yeah. So our situation is interesting because we have several different databases, and each with their own schemas. So we have a data application in our umbrella, and then inside that we have different folders for each of the databases, and so each folder has its own repo and also its own schemas. So we might say data.legacydatabase.user or data.othersystem.game. Okay, so you prefix it with the, the like showing what system it's part of, effectively. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's kind of nice sometimes that schemas are divorced from the repo, but really the schema is bound to the repo like it's it's that table in a particular database and i'm not going to have a user schema that works on two different databases like why Mm. that doesn't that doesn't make any sense at all 
that's more like the domain-driven design model in some ways. Just have like a user, I guess. And actually, I'm probably wrong about that. <laughs> Maybe we should edit that bit out. <laughs> I don't think that's domain-driven design. I mean, you no, could have no, like, I just realized that it's probably not. You could have a unified concept of the user, which we did in a project where we kind of gloss over the fact that some information comes from this database, some information comes from that database. And that's kind of nice because then you, at the boundary, cut off your application from knowing that that sort of detail. But I thought you hated that. No, I thought it was great. Oh, okay. I always thought you were like totally against that model, but I, I honestly thought it was good because, yeah, it didn't, like the things elsewhere in the system just didn't have to care about where that thing came from. I thought I was the one that came up with that pattern. <laughs> I, I, I'll give you the credit. You can take it. It's, That's fine. It's not about taking credit. I just feel like I've been, I've, I've had words put in my mouth. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm sure either one of us came up with that pattern. It was more likely to be you, definitely. That was a, it was, it was definitely interesting, like getting to pass around this generic user and then like the rest of your code didn't have to care about where it came from. Yeah, because it is a pain to have to, to have that detail leak into the rest of your app. And in that way, it is nice to have a schema that is divorced from database tables. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you've ended up with like God schemas? Mm -mm. No. Our schemas don't do much. Our schemas define a schema with the, the columns and the types and everything. They have change sets, and then they have very basic functionality. So a user a user schema will have a function called birthday, because the user... No, wait a second. The user schema has an attribute that's the birth date, and so it has a function called age, which mm. looks at the birth date and calculates uh, their current age. So that stuff makes sense to live on the schema itself, but everything else lives elsewhere in business logic. That's cool. Yeah, the schemas are very lightweight. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I feel like if you just follow some of the like good principles about like module kind of design and it kind of forces you to have like well, it, it means like it's more easy to have like a nicely designed system in some ways, right? You think about like a schema of doing a couple of things and not trying to be like the the every class and do all of these different have all these different methods and like that's when we get into um like a user service and the user schema. Mm. And the schema, again, just has change sets and the shape of the data. And the service is what creates them. The service is what answers questions about, is the user eligible for foo? Or whatever, again, whatever the logic is. I, I have another question for you about function design okay. as well. Because a lot of these things have been on my mind recently. Uh -huh. So <laughs> first of all, do you remember the Yoda way of doing pattern matching? Yes. <laughs> how do you feel about that these days and do you want to explain it for everyone so the yoda style of pattern matching is it comes from yoda programming which is uh i think a holdover from c so imagine you need to check something and typically you would say if x is equal to foo and yoda programming is saying if so the, if x is equal to the string foo or let's say if x is true which could be abbreviated to just if x but let's ignore that yoda programming is putting the constant first. So if the string foo is equal to X and it's called Yoda programming because it's like saying if blue is the sky. <laughs> and when you put it that way, when it when you read it, you think, well, let's go one, could go one way or another. But when you say it out loud as if thing is the, or if rock is the thing, then it sounds like you're talking like Yoda and it, it looks kind of funny. So in Elixir, 
that's when you're pattern matching. So suppose you have a function called do the thing. So this do the thing function can take several different types of structs. It could take a user struct and it could take a company struct. So inside of that function, you're pattern matching on what the struct is. So you would say do the thing, open parentheses, user schema, and then you assign it to the variable user so that you can use it inside the function body. Or you assign do the thing match on company equals company, and then inside that function you can say company dot mailing address or whatever. So uh, we had a, a colleague some time ago who liked to say, def do the thing, company equals data core user. Sorry, I mean, company equals company, like the struct company. And it just seems so backwards to me, because the interesting thing about that is, first of all, you want to know, did I call this with a company or a user? And only then do I want to assign it to a variable. And the variable could be named anything, like just thing. And so why is that the first part? of the sentence. <laughs> I'm glad that you still don't like it because I'm still in the same place where I'm like, it doesn't make sense to me either. It doesn't make any sense. I, but I, I guess uh, where I was going with this as well is, so something that we started to move away from, I think, is pattern matching a struct in a function when it only ever takes one type of struct. Okay. Um, and I'm wondering if you have a similar pattern in your code base. I wouldn't say we have a hard and fast rule, and I've gone back and forth on this. I like putting it in there because it documents what it could be called with, even though, to your point, like it's never it's never going to be called with anything else. And it seems a little ambiguous to me to say, well, I'm always going to call this with a user, but I'm going to destructure it as though it were a map. Technically true, but also it seems unnecessarily vague. Now, if you're type specking it, then you have the thing there. Is that what you do instead? Yeah, so that that was kind of the argument from one of our engineers here, which was like, oh, we've got it in the type spec and it only ever takes like a single type of struct, mm -hmm. right? So why bother also putting it in the function head? But I, I tend to agree with you where, you know where you, if you're patent matching um, like a ID variable out of a map, but actually that's, that's a struct that where you expect a particular type of struct, then... It feels like it's more, uh, it's better documenting to keep the struct in there as well. I think so. Yeah, but I can also, I can kind of appreciate the argument where people are saying like, it doesn't make sense to keep it in here and there's no real value in it, especially if it's in the, in the spec already. Um, where I do think obviously it's important is if the, if the function head takes multiple types of structs. Um, so you have like a union type where it takes like a user and, I don't know, like an anonymous user, and they're two different struct types. A legacy user, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I think in that case, like, yes, then pattern matching is a must, right? Especially if you've got different kind of function heads. I think I think your engineer has a, that's a totally fair argument. And You do? Yeah, if, if my team felt strongly about it, then yeah, that's fine. It does look a little weird to me that it when you're looking at these functions, it looks like they take maps. Yeah, and a struct is just a map, but again, it's like I know, but it's so loaded as well, though. Right? It's like it means something, right? Having a struct means something. Like you're passing around a very particular thing, you know. And that's the whole point of having structs, right? Exactly, exactly. To do that typing, mm -hmm. and like, therefore, I feel like it should always take it. But I don't know. I I kind of I I see where you're coming from as well. Like, 
especially if the team settles on something and you know you enforce it everywhere. Um, I think it's worse if you just start doing this if you've already got a pattern everywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that is a, a topic for another day, I would imagine. Well, and I can admit to being inconsistent with that sort of oh, thing. Oh, you can? Yeah. Oof. Awful. I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit it. I'm, I'm a stickler for consistency, and especially in, uh, yeah, in the code base. Mm -hmm. I am, I don't know. I just, I, I think like having standards and enforcing them across the team is so important, especially as your team scales. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean to say that every single code base has to look identical, but just at least in that code base, like I think you should be able to move around and everything feels familiar. So that reminds me of the formatter. Mm. So wouldn't it be interesting if the formatter or dialyzer one point converge and are like, we're just going to put the struct in here because that's what you call it with. Right. Actually, I would love that. I would love it if it was enforced in the formatter, which was like, if, if that's something that you opted into, well, oh shit, that kind of defeats the purpose of the formatter, I know. but um. <laughs> Well, and then we're back to like basically a typed language. Yeah, I know, but I'm okay with that. I'm like really okay with that. I don't know. Yeah, I've reached that age where I'm cool with types. Yeah, I'm like, just do it. it it's probably like, I prefer how it reads. I think if it's a map, show that it's a map. If it's a struct, show that it's a struct, you know? Yeah. The only time where this gets slightly annoying is if you want to do like true duck typing between like two structs and you don't care what the struct type is and you just want to match on like an ID in either of them. Mm-hmm. But I think, wasn't there a guard that someone proposed that will allow us to do this? Where you can say, when is struct, and then a type. Yeah, that's part of the new OTP21 um, supports guards like that. They haven't made their way into Elixir yet, but they will, I believe, soon. Because then you could do when is guard, or when is, when, sorry, when is struct, struct, or when is struct, struct. So I would say in that case, like... If I just wanted the ID from any of these structs and I don't care what type it is, then I, I'm cool with using a map because then I think you've reached the point where, yeah, it, it doesn't matter what you call it with. And the, the point of putting the struct in there is that it does matter or that you or do care. Or just match on the struct key. <laughs> what, by saying like... Oh, like oh, which which what kind of struct it is? Like when struct. Yeah, key is I always type. feel like that's such a crutch that you can always like go into a map, or if it's a struct and you're using it like a map, and you can just find the key that's double underscore struct, mm -hmm. and then you could do like take that struct and I don't know match on the struct type because the 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 struct is actually just an atom, right? Mm -hmm. Like when it's inside of there, so you could say when atom in list of atoms yeah and didn't we in one project like <laughs> remove that key to convert things back to a map uh yeah i've definitely done that like when we serialize stuff like calling um like from struct yeah on it yeah yeah but then that's really annoying because if you pass a map to from struct it blows up yeah oh and i i ran into this uh recently when um adding like adding different fields to structs using the pipe pipe operator. Mm. Um, dialyzer complains because you get back some kind of ambiguous, like it can't guarantee that you're getting back the original struct, which now that I think about it is sort of funny because the point of a struct is you've defined what fields are allowed to be set in it. 
Right. So it was some combination of like jiggery pokery. I had a map. I was taking stuff in, putting stuff out um, with the struct and like dialyzer got pissed off. There so, you go. Don't do jiggery pokery is the answer. Speaking of dialyzer, we should probably call out that we were called out by uh, Andy Summers, who was on the podcast a couple a couple episodes ago to talk about dialyzer. Uh, last week, we were discussing using decorators in our functions to wrap um, wrap function calls and things like measurements for for reporting and instrumentation. And Andrew writes that the decorator library in Elixir does some bad stuff, making dialyzer give up. In Spandex, when we moved to explicit function calls, Dialyzer gave errors it was suppressing before. So he says macros feel right here, but they can hide too much. Yeah, I I, I, I get where he's coming from. I really do. Mm-hmm. And honestly, uh, the Dialyzer thing is a bit troubling. So I guess, you know what? Like, it's one of those, like, use macros carefully. And maybe, maybe decorators are too much of a crutch in some ways mm-hmm. and you should actually make it a bit more explicit but, but if, if decorators were built into the language <laughs> then we wouldn't be having this conversation right then dialyzer would probably be okay with it well i think the point is that decorators start to really obfuscate what's going on yeah and andrew goes on to say like don't sugar just for sugar's sake and yes definitely i i still feel like there's some legitimate use cases uh, just to make things a bit easier, especially when you're doing it all over the place. But I, I, I heed and I understand his point. So, I, can, I mean, I can see my way to having an exception for like instrumentation. Yeah, yeah, me too. Exactly. But I can't think of anything else. And if I could, the whitelist of things that I would bl- I would see as an acceptable decorator would be fewer than three. Yeah, yeah. I don't I, I don't want to use it like all over the place. I think like where we have it is reasonable. Um but yeah. Yeah. So, shall we wrap up? I think so. And on that yeah. note. On that note. Happy note. Well, everything that Desmond talked about with his new job and things like that will be in the show notes. Um if you have any feedback, please let us know. Like you can reach out to us on Twitter at twitter.com slash elixitalk. Or if you want a question answered on the podcast, um, you can open up an issue on our GitHub page, which is github.com slash elixitalk slash elixitalk. So we're going to be out next week for the holidays because we release about a week after we record it. So everybody hang out and enjoy your summer. We'll be back after that with the latest episode. Yeah, hopefully we'll have a lot more exciting topics to talk about and some people to interview soon as well. Cool. Yeah. And as always, keep elixiring. Keep elixiring.